Hello and welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is Journeys from the Past. My name is Andy Davis. The purpose of these podcasts is to inspire listeners to courageous, sacrificial actions, to make progress in the two journeys, the internal journey of holiness and the external journey of evangelism and missions, by learning the stories of our heroic brothers and sisters from the past. Today, we're going to learn about somebody that maybe many of you have never heard about before, and his name is Raymond Lull. Raymond Lull was a pioneer in missions to Muslims. Actually, we would have to say he was the first missionary to the Muslims. He lived in the 13th century during the time of the Crusades when all that European Christendom could envision with the Muslim world was military conquest, slaughter by the sword. But this man, Raymond Lull, stepped forward to point the way of peace and love, a way of education in Arabic and in the Muslim culture, the way of reasoning with Muslim clerics and Muslim people about the superiority of the Christian faith, winning hearts and minds by persuasion and by sacrificial love. In short, he was a true missionary who sought by love and by the power of the gospel to win people who were the most violently opposed to the gospel in his day, perhaps in ours as well. That's what makes Raymond Law so relevant for us in the 21st century. We live in a world strongly impacted by Islam and by Islamic fundamentalism. To learn from this hero from over seven centuries ago would be an amazing benefit to our effort to win Muslims to faith in Christ, especially when, post 9-11, most of the Western world looks at Islamic terrorism as a serious threat to national security. Christians who see Muslims as human beings with eternal souls who can be rescued from the satanic lie that has captured them, rescued into the true faith of Christ, Christians who are willing to learn the Arabic language as well as whatever tribal language that individuals may speak in their dreams, their heart language, Christians who are willing to immerse themselves in the culture of the Muslim people they are seeking to reach, who are willing to die, even to die, to see the gospel light shine among a Muslim village that has never heard of Christ. These modern-day heroes are actually following in the footsteps of the faith that Raymond Lull walked so many centuries ago. Now, the backdrop of Raymond Lull's story is understanding Islam and the Crusades. That's the context for Raymond Lull. It was the era of the Crusades. The Crusades were a misguided effort made by European Christians to reclaim the Holy Land from the Muslim armies that had conquered those lands. Ralph Winter, a missiologist, 20th century missiologist, said, the Crusades are the most tragic misconstrual of the Christian mission in the 2,000-year history of the Church of Jesus Christ. That's quite a statement, eh? the most tragic misconstrual of Christian mission, to try to go over by sword and conquer Muslim people and win land, physical lands, from the Muslims in the name of Christ was not what Jesus envisioned by the Great Commission. Well, let's try to understand the context for the Crusades, and the context for the Crusades was the rise of Islam. Islam began with the visions of Muhammad, an Arab merchant, around the year 610. Muhammad claimed to have been visited by the angel Gabriel in the cave of Hira near Mecca, who had commanded him to recite, from which 
Muslims get the word Quran, uh, that's where the Quran came from, a command to recite. Within decades of Muhammad's death in 632, Islam began spreading widely and rapidly. It advanced both by the appeal of its monotheism and by its simple precepts of works salvation, but also by the threat of the sword. Submit or die is essentially consistent with Islam, though it has no place in the Christian message. Islamic warriors swept out of the uh, Arabian boot up north into the Holy Land through Asia Minor, Turkey, all the way to the gates of the Eastern Roman Empire, called the Byzantine Empire, where they were checked, they were stopped militarily. Uh, but they also poured west across Egypt, uh, sweeping along the southern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, North Africa, destroying the Christian region there in North Africa, what one scholar called the Bible Belt of the Ancient Worlds. That's where Augustine of Hippo had his ministry and many others. And so there were many Christian congregations in North Africa that were swept away by this militaristic uh, tidal wave of Islam coming across North Africa. Moorish Muslim warriors swept into Morocco, crossed the Straits of Gibraltar, militarily conquered Spain, and were finally stopped in Central Europe, in France, by Charles Martel in 732 at the Battle of Tours. Then Islam rested in the Spanish peninsula and dominated Spain for most of seven centuries. In the year 1095, when the Byzantine Emperor Alexis was threatened by Muslim Seljuk Turks, he sent out an urgent appeal for help. The Bishop of Rome, Pope Urban II, called for the First Crusade to try to retake the Holy Land. The use of the sword to advance the Kingdom of Christ was very familiar to the kings of Western Europe, of Christendom, and especially to Viking converts, recent Viking converts who had come to faith in Christ by monks who were willing to lay down their lives for the gospel, as we talked about in an earlier podcast. Ralph Winter made the observation that all of the early crusades were led predominantly by ex-Vikings. The promise to the crusaders was a clear mixture of both earthly and heavenly rewards. Pope Urban II had promised all crusaders full forgiveness of all sins, as well as abundant plunder if they should join the crusade. Monks like Bernard of Clairvaux added the power of ecstatic visions and impassioned preaching to the persuasion. In all, there were seven crusades from the end of the 11th century to the end of the 13th century, and they did staggering levels of harm to the reputation of Christianity ever since that time. Jews were slaughtered by the Crusaders. Muslims also slaughtered. Under the Crusaders' cry in Latin, Deus vult, God wills it. Even Constantinople itself was conquered and sacked by Crusaders. The capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, was itself conquered by these Crusaders. The Holy Land, including Jerusalem, was indeed conquered in the name of Christ, and it was held for almost two centuries until the year 1291. But the whole thing was an abomination and a failure to understand how little Christ is concerned with conquering and holding geographical regions, territories, by the sword and how much he's concerned with winning individual people's souls 
by love and by the word of God. Now, back then, the Arab-speaking Muslims were not called Muslims, but Saracens. So let's try to understand the European context. Samuel Zwamer, who is a, uh, himself a missionary to the Muslims and a scholar of Islam, uh, who lived in the 19th century, he said this uh, about Raymond Lull. To understand Raymond Lull, we must put ourselves back 700 years and see Europe and the Saracens as they were before the dawn of the Renaissance and the daybreak of the Reformation. Although the shadow of the Dark Ages still felt heavily upon it, the 13th century was an eventful epoch, at least for Europe. The colossal power of the empire was waning, and separate states were springing up in Italy and Germany. The growth of civil liberty, although only in its infancy, was already bearing fruit in the enlargement of ideas and the founding of universities. In England, Norman and Saxon were at last one people. The Magna Carta was signed, and the first parliament was summoned. About the time that Raymond Lull was born, the Tartars invaded Russia and sacked Moscow. Saracens and Christians were disputing not only the possession of the Holy Land, but the rulership of the world. Although in the East, the long struggle for the Holy City, Jerusalem, had ended in the, in the loss by the Christians, the spirit of the Crusades lived on. The same century that saw the fall of Acre also saw the fall of Baghdad and the extinction of the Muslim Caliphate there. In Spain, Ferdinand of Castile, was winning city after city away from the Moors, who were entrenching their last stronghold, Castile. The year 1240 marks the rise of the Ottoman Turks. Raymond Lull was then just five years old. Before he was 20, Louis IX had failed in his crusade and had been taken prisoner by the Sultan of Egypt. Emperors had deposed popes and popes had deposed emperors. And the Inquisition had begun in Spain to torture Jews and heretics. At Cologne, the foundations of a great cathedral was being laid. And at Paris, men were experimenting with a new technological innovation, gunpowder. All Europe was heated with the strong wine of political change and social expectations. In the same century, the Mongolian hordes under Genghis Khan poured out like long pent-up waters over all the countries of the East. The Crusades were breaking up old static society. The feudal system was disappearing. The invention and application of paper, the mariner's compass, and gunpowder heralded the eras of printing, exploration, and conquest in the century that would follow Samuel Zwamer. Well, let's talk now about the life of Raymond Lull. We've set the context now, the rise of Islam. Uh, the start of the Crusades, what Europe was like, what was going on current events-wise. Now let's talk about Raymond Lull. Raymond Lull was born in the year 1232, almost 800 years ago, on the island of Mallorca, off the east coast of Spain, in Mallorca's largest city, Palma. Lull was from a distinguished Catalanian family. His parents, Ramon Amat Lull and Isabel Duril, were members of a bourgeois middle-class family in Barcelona. In 1229, they encouraged and financed, alongside other Catalan merchants, the efforts of King James I of Aragon to conquer the island of Mallorca, at that time under Muslim domination, in exchange for lands and privileges that were given to them. Following the triumph over the Moors, they received lands and moved to the island. Ramon, their only son, 
uh, was born there only a few years later. So Ramon, or Raymond Lull, was raised in a low-level aristocratic family with a decent education and access to the halls of power in Spain. In his early days, Raymond was quite worldly. He became a courtier to King James II of Aragon, and he was the court poet and a very skilled musician. He was living the life of an immoral troubadour, a life of sinful self-indulgence. In the year 1257, he married Blanca Picani, who belonged to another Catalan family settled in Majorca, with whom he had two children, Dominic and Magdalena. Despite his marriage, he tried to seduce the wife of one of the court officials. Around the year 1263, while Lull was composing a very lewd and suggestive poem addressed to this woman, he had a vision of Christ looking upon him with great sorrow. He also saw the wounds that Christ had suffered on the cross as he died for our salvation. This shook him to the core of his being, and he put the wicked poem aside. A week or so later, he took up his pen again to try to complete the same wicked poem, and the vision appeared a second time. This actually happened a total of five times, as it seems Raymond was stubborn in his lust. But the final vision was enough. Raymond repented of his sin and found forgiveness through faith in the cross of Jesus Christ. Of course, the Protestant Reformation would not happen for another three centuries. So the only form of Christianity in Europe at that time was the Roman Catholic Church. But it does seem that Raymond Lull genuinely understood salvation through faith in Christ alone. Now it was time for him to change his lewd and worldly life entirely. Following his salvation experience, Lull returned to the island of Majorca. On St. Francis' feast day, he observed on October 4th, he listened to the bishop as he described the conversion of St. Francis of Assisi. Impressed by the example of voluntary poverty and simplicity set by St. Francis, Lull decided to sell most of his material possessions, give it all to the poor, just keeping the bare minimum needed for the support of his wife and his children, then he set out on pilgrimage. In his own words, this was the vow of his consecration. Quote, to you, Lord God, do I now offer myself and my wife and my children and all that I possess. And since I approach you humbly with this gift and sacrifice, may it please you to condescend to accept all that I give and offer up now for you that I and my wife and my children may be your humble slaves. He lived the life of a spiritual recluse for a long while, pursuing monastic isolation and mysticism, as well as his own holiness and prayers. However, he began to see how selfish even this kind of life really was in a world filled with people dying and going to hell. Another vision came and jarred him into missions, into activity for the spreading of the gospel. He had a vision of himself in a forest, meditating alone, far from all worldly distractions. Then, in his vision, he met a traveling pilgrim who chided him for the self-centered life he was living, even then as a monk, when, he, when there was a world that needed the message of Christ. It was this second vision that specifically led him to go as a missionary to the Muslim Saracens, the most hated and feared enemies of Christendom. He was 40 years old when he began his missionary career. 
he realized that the Crusades were not the way to win lost Muslims to Christ. Lull wrote these words. Now listen carefully to this. I see many knights going to the Holy Land beyond the seas and thinking they can acquire it by force of arms. But in the end, all are destroyed before they attain that which they think to have. Whence it seems to me that the conquest of the Holy Land ought to be attempted by love and prayers and by the pouring out of tears and blood. End quote. And by that he did not mean militarily, but be not willing to kill for Christ, but willing to die for Christ. He dedicated his life to three great projects. Number one, converting unbelievers to Christ. Number two, writing books against the errors of unbelievers. And number three, funding monasteries and universities in which the different languages necessary for his mission could be taught. This project demonstrates a novel conviction that the rational dialogue between religions is the way to establish a single faith and a single universal religious law based on overcoming the differences between the three monotheist religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. But the project that Raymond Lull resolved to undertake entailed a greater difficulty that he himself acknowledged. He had none of the knowledge necessary for what he was trying to do. Therefore, a fundamental part of his project would be his education in two cultures and languages that he didn't know at all, Latin and Arabic. He spent the next nine years in the intensive study of the Arabic language, as well as Muslim culture and philosophy and religion. He strongly advocated the importance of this kind of academic preparation as one seeks to reach a people for Christ. On one occasion, during a period of deep study with his Arabic tutor, a Moorish Muslim slave, the Moor blasphemed the name of Christ. In anger, Lull rose up and struck the slave, who in turn pulled a dagger and wounded Lull severely, though not critically. The slave was placed in prison and knowing the consequences of this act of violence, hanged himself in his cell. This shook Raymond Lull and he realized as never before that winning Muslims to Christ must not be through violence and anger, as Muslims had done in spreading their religion across North Africa, but by love. By the way, this action toward his slave was very unlike that of future missionary Henry Martin, who under a similar circumstance, when he had heard someone blaspheming the name of Christ, had wept as the Lord Jesus was blasphemed and pleaded with the one who did it rather than lashing out in anger. But Raymond Lull, at this particular moment, realized that his own anger was something he had to overcome. In education, he followed Columba's example and opened a monastery dedicated to the training of missionaries to the Arabs. He also went around to many universities in Europe seeking to persuade them to fund programs in teaching Arabic, and he was successful in doing that. Lull's study of philosophy and his religious experience culminated in a vision which he had on Mount Randa in the year 1272. In that vision, he saw a system for the reduction of all knowledge to a series of basic principles associated with the nature of God. Beginning in 1274, he described his system in a series of works, many of which bear uh, the title The Art. He stressed that certain principles of philosophy and the theology, which for Lull could never contradict each other, are self-evident and common to all sciences. 
In the year 1276, Lull founded the College of Miramar in Majorca, which trained men in the study of Arabic and prepared missionaries for service in Islamic lands. Altogether, he wrote some 150 to 200 works in Latin, Arabic, and Catalan on such diverse subjects as theology, philosophy, logic, and poetry. Most of them were apologies for the faith, defenses for the faith, and indicate not only his primary desire to convert unbelievers, but also his attempt to make philosophy subordinate to theology in order to attain his goal. Now let's talk about mission trips to the Muslims. Lull tried to persuade people to go with him to preach the gospel in Muslim lands, but he was unsuccessful. The fear and loathing was just too great. People really hated the Muslims and really feared them, and they didn't want to take part in a kind of a loving persuasion of them. Having mastered the Arabic language and the culture of the Muslim world, Raymond began challenging people to go with him as missionaries to the Muslim people, but people did not want to go with him. So he established chairs of missions in several European universities, and although considerable interest was aroused, no one was willing to join with him uh, to uh, the Muslim world. Lull's motto became, he who loves not lives not. He who lives by the life cannot die. He who loves not, lives not. He who lives by the life cannot die. He also said, missionaries will convert the world by preaching, but also through the shedding of tears and their own blood with great labor and through bitter death. When he saw that his efforts to challenge others to go as missionaries to the Muslim world had failed, he determined to go himself to these lost people. His first trip is thought to have taken place in the year 1287, at which time he would have been in his early 50s. He was in the city of Genoa, from which trading vessels frequently worked the Mediterranean ports between Genoa and the North African coast. He booked passage on a vessel going to Tunis and put all of his possessions, including his books, on the boat and boarded in preparation for the voyage. He had told all of his friends he was going as a missionary to Tunis. But at that moment, he became overwhelmed with fear, fearful of what would happen to him if he were to preach in this Muslim city. He was afraid to die. So he had all of his possessions removed at the last possible minute from the ship and allowed the vessel to go on without him. It had no sooner left the port than he was struck with a great feeling of shame at his cowardice. He felt that he had betrayed his Lord and Savior. It affected him so severely that he became critically ill with an undiagnosed illness. Since there were frequent voyages, another ship soon made preparation for the voyage to Tunis, and Raymond allowed himself to be carried on board in order to sail on that vessel. However, seeing his critical medical condition and fearful that he would not even survive the voyage, his friends removed him from the sh ship against his will. So twice he was taken off ships uh, in which he intended to go as a missionary. The third time, with the ship sailing, he persuaded his friends to carry him on board, and this time he did set sail. No sooner had the uh, vessel reached the open water than he recovered miraculously from his illness, and during the voyage testified that he had never felt in better health. I just think this is an interesting story. Here's a guy that has been talking the talk. Now it came time for him to walk the walk, and he drew back. Uh, it's a very human story, a, a time of cowardice, a time of, of fearfulness. And no wonder, because he really was taking his life into his own hands. But he overcame his fear and went. 
Upon reaching Tunis, he engaged in an open debate with the Muslim clerics and scholars called imams. A number at that time actually professed to accept Jesus Christ as Savior. This so alarmed the king of Tunis that Raymond was thrown into a dungeon and given a death sentence. However, after a period of time, and perhaps at the pleas of some of the Genoese merchants, his death sentence was commuted to deportation with the threat that if he returned, he would most certainly be executed. Before the ship on which he was being deported left, that harbor, however, he jumped ship under the cover of darkness and hid among the warehouses in the dock area. Learning of his whereabouts, his new converts frequented his hiding place and were di discipled by him for a number of months in the city of Goleta. He truly loved his converts and bonded to them. Eventually, he returned to Italy. He traveled extensively back to the European capitals and to Rome, trying to challenge the Christians of Europe to go to the Muslim people with the gospel. But again, he had no success. It was at this time that the Roman church denounced him as a heretic. It's a very interesting thing. Raymond Lull is hard to figure out intellectually. It's hard to find out. I'm just telling you in the research I did for this podcast, I'm not really certain what I think about some of his stranger ideas. But I'm just zeroing in on his activities as a missionary. He was declared a heretic by the Roman Catholic Church, but this seems to have been more out of politics than actual doctrines that they question. During this period of time, he made long journeys to Cyprus, to Syria, Armenia, and back through Cyprus again. He not only had a burden for the Muslim people, but also for the Jews, and taught and preached the necessity of reaching out arms of love and compassion and teaching them that Christ was indeed their Messiah. He had a vision of winning the whole world for Christ. Even though he was by this time in his early 70s, he had no thoughts of retirement. His next trip to North Africa was in the year 1307. He boldly preached the word of God in an Algerian city called Bugia. When he was called before the judge by an angry mob and questioned about his preaching in the marketplace, the judge threatened death. Having no fear of death, Lowell's response was, the true servant of God must fear no death or peril of death in showing forth the truth to infidels who are in error and bringing them into the way of salvation. He was placed in prison and received much abuse. He was struck with sticks. Uh, he was uh, struck with stones. People punched him. He had his beard pulled. He was placed in chains. Later, he was placed in an even more vile dungeon, but some merchants from Catalan and Genoa pleaded for clemency in his behalf. He was then put into a little better situation where he could receive some visitors and was able to preach to the Moors and disciple his converts. For a year and a half, he languished in the foul, vile dungeon there. But during this time, he, like Paul, preached to one and all in prison. His converts would come to him secretly for instruction. Sadly, he believed that for every one Saracen he converted to Christianity, ten Christians, so-called, were becoming Muslims. He was basically losing the numbers game. Yet he never tired of his struggle to witness to Muslims. Lull did not think that a lack of speedy results was an argument for abandoning the work of preaching to Muslims the gospel of Christ. Finally, after a year and a half of imprisonment, he was again banished and told never to return. This time a very severe storm wrecked the ship as it neared Italy. Many of the passengers perished. Lull escaped um, drowning in the sea, but he lost all of his possessions. Failing again to stimulate interest in his burden for reaching the Muslims and the Jews with the gospel, Lull, 
At this time, the age of 79 returned secretly to Bugia in the year 1314 and hid himself away. He was able to contact his converts from a previous visit and taught them in secret for a year. At the end of that year, he could contain himself no longer. He openly went out into the marketplace and boldly preached Jesus Christ. It seems he openly desired the honor and glory of martyrdom for the name of Christ, and the time came. Angry mobs dragged him out of the city and at the instigation and approval of the king stoned him. Some historians say he was stoned to death right at that time. Others say that some Catalanian merchants put him on a sailing vessel, rescuing him from the mob, and that he died en route to his home in Mallorca. There are other accounts as well. So as we look at the life of Raymond Lowell, what lasting lessons can we take from this? First is realizing Islam is still with us. Millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are still in thrall to that system of works that began in the year 610 and continues to spread all around the world. We know that post 9-11, as we look at our world, many in the West have a greater feeling of loathing and fear of Muslims than any compassion uh, for them, given the fact that they uh, have eternal souls that will spend eternity either in heaven or hell. And so I think following Raymond Lull's example of courageous missions, of being willing to learn Arabic, to learn their culture, to engage people in discussions, to win people by persuasion, and to think about Jesus' principle of missions in John 12, 24. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So as we conclude today, I want you to go into your week knowing that your loving Heavenly Father holds your life and all your ways in His hands. Nothing can happen to you apart from His will. He orchestrates the rise and fall of mighty empires and the death of sparrows that no one ever sees. He has numbered the very hairs of your head and all the days ordained for you were written in His book before one of them came to be. And He has gone ahead of you to prepare a specific set of good works for you to walk in good works that are essential to his eternal kingdom. Just as your brothers and sisters in Christ live for his glory in their day, do the same in yours by the power of his Spirit for the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.